Crosswalk Church Podcast in Phoenix, Arizona. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. I'm going to just pause there because you can hear already. John is with an angel guide who is showing him, giving him a, a, a crystal clear Vision, a picture of what heaven is going to be like. Revelation has only 22 chapters. And the vision has begun in Revelation chapter 1 with Jesus arriving onto the island of Patmos in a vision to John, the apostle, the, the same apostle that's described as the apostle that Jesus loved. He's the last remaining apostle, probably in his 90s, and he's imprisoned on a prison in a prison camp on the island of Patmos because of his faith in Christ he's irritated and annoyed the authorities of the Roman empire who want all their people to worship the emperor as god and won't have it that someone is teaching the people to worship Jesus Christ as god so john gets all these various different visions about the end times and this is the very Last vision in the book of Revelation that John has given, a sneak peek into heaven. That's really what the word revelation means, a sneak peek. And John gets this, and I want you to hear what it, what it looks like. And we've already heard there's a river in this vision as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. There's a city in this vision. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. I want you to think about John being imprisoned in a prison camp, a Roman prison camp, notorious. Uh, the Romans were notorious for these prison camps on islands elsewhere. They were not pleasant places. And basically, when one was in one of these prison camps, to simply survive was a major accomplishment. Patmos was a, a barren island with not much on it but rock and dirt. And here's John and He's receiving this vision to, to sort of give him some encouragement. I began to think about what life must be like in a concentration camp, in a prison camp. 
for John in ancient times, but down through the ages, I think that the experience of living in a concentration camp or a prisoner of war camp, um, those have been similar. And I don't know how many of you have heard of a gentleman by the name of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish prisoner of war uh, in in World War II, was actually part of the the whole uh, cleansing, as the Nazis called it, of six million Jews, the the murder and annihilation of six million people because of their race. Viktor Frankl was rounded up. He was a, a psychiatrist who had worked in a psychiatric hospital in the city of Vienna, and when, when uh, the Nazis occupied Vienna, Frankel was arrested and he was uh, imported into one of several concentration camps that he ended up passing through, eventually even passing through the, the very infamous concentration camp called Auschwitz. And Frankel, before his arrest, had been working on a book a book that was going to emerge out of his psychiatric experiences in the hospital in Vienna. And so he very carefully tucked his manuscript for his book inside the jacket of his coat, inside and sewed it in there so that he could keep it even though he was being arrested. And he did his very best to, to hide that manuscript for the book from the Nazis. But one day, the Nazis saw what a wonderful jacket he had and said, we're trading that very nice jacket that you have. And before he had a chance to grab his manuscript out of the jacket, it was snatched from him and replaced with a threadbare jacket that was taken off of the shoulders of a person that had just been ushered into the gas chamber and then his body uh, into the ovens. Frankel was beside himself. His manuscript that he had worked so long and hard on was gone. But there was also something ironically sewn inside the threadbare jacket that he had gotten from another prisoner. And it was a little Yiddish proverb. And the proverb basically said that a person should not just talk about the good that they want to see done in life. Proverbs said we should do more than talk. We should act on the basis of the good that we want to see done. In modern times, we say we should be the change that we want to see in the world. That was the effect of that Yiddish proverb. And Frankel decided from that moment on that he was going to try to actually live out that proverb in his life in the concentration camps. And he determined he was going to rewrite his book, but this time not just with experiences that he had gained from the psychiatric hospital, but also with experiences that he had gained in the prison camp. And he describes life in his book. And if you want to get the book, it's still being printed today. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. It's an amazing book. And I highly recommend it just for the experience of someone living in a prisoner of war camp. And he describes what happened in that camp. He describes the physical and the verbal abuse, the public humiliation, the use of their labor for free by the Nazis. And when, like work animals, they were no longer able to perform their duties, how they were ushered into the gas chamber. He lays it all out. But the interesting thing is that Frankel determined that his book would not just be about the atrocities, 
of the Nazis. And he became very interested and intrigued also with the behavior of the prisoners themselves. And he began to describe what was seemingly almost a Darwinian survival of the fittest struggle that was going on in the hearts, minds, and lives of most of those who were imprisoned. That basically, as he said, the people who were imprisoned were turned into very animalistic, selfish, self-centered creatures by the treatment of not only the Nazis, but also sometimes by people that were called the Kapos. I don't know if you know what a Kapo was in World War II, but a Kapo was a Jewish person that got turned and became an ally of the Nazis and turned against his own people and would betray them. And that behavior created suspicion and all kinds of things going on, fear in the hearts of the people, the Jewish prisoners who were imprisoned there. And they they began to go at each other. Frankel calls them pigs. He said, we began to behave like swine, like pigs against each other. But this is just where the book gets the most interesting. Because Frankel also takes note that there there was a very small minority of prisoners who did not cave in to that kind of behavior. That never became what he called pigs or swine, that never began to attack or take food. Some of the people were even uh, so greedy and so selfish that they would snatch food out of the hands of small children so that they could eat just a little bit more because they thought to themselves, I have to survive, and if these children don't survive, that's just tough. But there was a small group of people that refused to act that way. And, and Frankel began to study them, and he, he learned something very interesting about that group of people. He, he noticed that when he talked to them, these people had two things inside their heart that made them different from the rest of all the prisoners. And, and both of those things were firmly planted in their mind as almost a, a, a tangible picture, a vision of what they were to be in life. And the first was they had a very strong sense and picture of purpose in their life. And and that's why he went on to call his book Man's Search for Meaning. But the other thing he noticed was that they had a very strong sense and a picture of hope in their lives. Let me read a little quote. If one has belief that life has meaning and one lives in accordance with that belief, if one is able to generate some sort of hope for the future, one is likely to live in kindness despite the vicissitudes, that means the ups and downs of life. One is likely to live in kindness despite all the ups and downs in life if you have a sense of meaning and purpose and if you have a sense of hope. You know what's so interesting about that? Since Frankel, who wrote his book back in the 1940s, it's not just prisoners in prisoner of war camps, people in concentration camps that have studied this phenomenon, but also it's been studied in the health world. And 
Health professionals who have studied this and researched this have noticed the very same effect. That when people have a sense of meaning and hope, the percentage of those people who survive even even the most serious life-threatening issues and illnesses, the percentage of survivors goes way up. And I'm sure you're aware that nowadays... Ever since, um, if you saw the movie Moneyball, there's all kinds of scientific research that goes on in the sports world, too. And one of the phenomena that they have studied in the sports world is what is the mindset and the attitude of teams and players that tend to not get down when they're very far behind in a game and seemingly headed for defeat and yet turn it around And achieve victory in the end in a game that everyone thought was impossible. And guess what were the results? A sense of meaning and a sense of hope. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's John, the apostle, imprisoned on a prison, prisoner of war island in a a concentration camp. And God sends an angel to him to do what? To say to him, John, even though you may feel hopeless at times, you may feel like this place is a horror, there is meaning behind your being here. And God said, write down this vision. Literally, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, he says, write this down, John, and I want you to write letters to all the churches that you're pastor of. Interesting, very much just like Viktor Frankl. God gave John a purpose in the midst of his suffering, and even more so, he gave him a sense of hope. I want you to think about one more thing before we dive into this passage, because this really tells us why it's important for us to hear this message today. This is critical for you to hear. In a concentration camp, things are truly concentrated. The experiences and the losses that one experience are concentrated in the sense that the moment you walk through the gates of a concentration camp, the things that you lose are immediately in a moment taken from you. Your freedom is gone. Your ability to make choices, sometimes even about the people that are most near and dear to you. We all know what happened in the Nazi prisoner of war camps. Family members were lost. There wasn't much food, so even daily sustenance and then ultimately health was lost. And it all happened so rapidly that it creates a sense of horrible shock in people, right? A sense of trauma. But here's what I want you to think about. Does anyone or does anything that gets taken away in a concentration camp not ultimately also get taken away from you in this life? Think about it for a moment. What happens all of a sudden in this concentrated experience of a concentration camp All those things that I mentioned that get taken away, they ultimately get taken away from us just 
in normal life in a fallen world impacted by sin and death too. We are, in essence, all of us living in a concentration camp where the losses and the trauma is just a little bit more spread out. You've heard the old story, haven't you, about the frog that's dropped into the boiling pot of water and how it shocks and the frog will jump out of that boiling pot of water because it's hot immediately. But if you put the frog into the water while it's still cool and then turn on a low flame so that the water heats up only bit by bit, the frog will boil to death. We're the frogs in that heating up water, but it's only gradually heating up on us. The loss of our health, a slow thing as we go on in life and grow older and we get hit by first one illness and then another. The loss of family members taken from us maybe just one at a time, but nevertheless, even though it's devastating and painful in the moment, we have time to recover before the next family member is taken from us. The loss of life itself. We will all face that one day. And so this vision that John receives was important not just only for early Christians who, who had to be encouraged because of the persecution of the Roman church and because of the fear that they might too be arrested and sent to a concentration camp because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It's important for all people of all time to hear this because all of us are ultimately living in a space where sin is still ruling and because of that, Death rules in this life. Now, it's been defeated by Jesus Christ, and that's the beautiful part of the story. But meanwhile, meanwhile, we're still living under the impact and the effect of sin and death. So with all of that as background, now I want to dive in, and I want to have you fill in the first fill-in. What What is Jesus doing as he sends this angel to John that we read about? And this angel gives John a sneak peek of this heavenly city that descends. He's casting a greatly needed vision to show us, all of us, also those of us today living in this sin-infested, fallen world, that we will prevail in the end. We're going to have the victory because Jesus Christ won the victory when he spread out his hands and had them nailed to the cross and bled and died for us. And when God, three days later, raised him from the tomb, our fallenness, our sins will and have been taken from us. All of them, they're gone. And the effect of those sins will one day be completely gone. As we die, pass through judgment day, and are judged not in our own works, but through the works and the righteousness of Christ, and are declared perfect, holy, fully obedient because of all that Christ has done for us. And then we are ushered into this place that is pictured here. 
Take a look at some of the passages I put under that first point that Jesus cast for us a greatly needed vision to show us that we're going to prevail in the end. The first thing that, that we read in the book of Revelations in chapter 14 is the acknowledgement that while we're in this life, while we're in the concentration camp of this world, we're going to need to patiently endure a lot of things. Notice what it says. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. There are going to be times in this life when we are hurt, when we are troubled by the things that we see around us in this fallen world, when we are attacked directly by Satan, the world, and attacked from within by our own sinful flesh and led into sin, fall to temptation, and begin to destroy ourselves and others around us. That's what sin does. That's what sin is. And so if we are to reach this place, we need to come to God and say, God, give me perseverance. Help me to bear up under these vicissitudes, these ups and downs of life in this world that sometimes can be so hurtful and so painful. And so many times that hurt and pain is created by my own sins and guilt. Help me to keep on going. Help me, Lord, somehow to survive and keep putting one foot in front of the other, no matter how heavy the burden is. This calls, God tells John, while he's on that island, this calls for you to have patient endurance and remain faithful to Jesus, your Savior. Three chapters later in Revelation 17, Then God comes back to John and he says, look, have no doubts. You will prevail in the end. Even though you are going to have to endure and bear up and persevere through the pains and troubles of this life. Health issues, relationship issues, marriage issues, children issues, grandchildren issues, parent issues. Issues of the economy, your house taken from your possession, your car repossessed, whatever it might be, addictions, struggling with alcohol or drugs, caving into pornography, whatever those addictions might be, yes, you're going to struggle against them, but in the end, whatever your struggle is right here, right now, you are going to have victory. They will wage war against the Lamb. The they is the enemies of the Lamb, and the Lamb is Jesus Christ. Satan is going to wage war against Jesus, but the Lamb will triumph. Will you underline those words? But the Lamb will triumph. He will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Underline those words too. With him, in victory, will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. How did we get to be here with Jesus? How did we get to be on the right team? God is so clear with John. We were invited to be here. We were called to faith in Jesus. We were chosen to be his. And he sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts to live there. So that we can be his temple and be called and faithful. And what's going to happen in the end? One chapter before the chapter that we read before. 
God begins through this angel to describe what heaven is going to be like, this sneak peek. And he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You know, I get to officiate at a lot of weddings. And it's one of the most fun things a pastor gets to do is officiate at a wedding. It's just amazing. I was at one about two weeks ago, out in the country near Florence, Arizona, beautiful setting, uh, green grass, a, a beautiful pond, uh, a winery that they had set up, and it was an outdoor arch with a beautiful green lawn stretching out in front of it. And, and one of my favorite moments in the wedding, I'm sure for most people, is that moment of anticipation as the bride is about to arrive, right? And, and here's what I always love to look at because I remember this moment myself in my own wedding. I, I prefer to watch the reaction of the groom as the bride appears for the very first time. Now, at this particular wedding in Florence, uh, they had it all arranged that she would arrive in a horse-drawn carriage. And she came up to a little circle and stepped out of the carriage like Cinderella, literally. And then walked on a sidewalk. And the groom, the look on his face was priceless. And guys, you remember that moment, don't you, when you said, man, I have never seen her look more beautiful than right now. Do you see how God pictures that moment that we first see this heavenly city? The bride of Christ, which is the church, descending out of heaven. And, and that place pictured as a city where one day we will, we will live forever. I think we're going to look at it and just be astonished and astounded. Have you ever walked into a place where, where you just didn't know where to look first? Like there's all this stuff and it's amazing. Maybe when you were a little child and you first walked down the main street of Disneyland... And you're just like, oh my goodness, look, look at this place. I don't know where to focus. It's just all so amazing. That's, that's the feeling that we're going to get as we step into the heavenly Jerusalem. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Flip the page over. And here's what we get. And we, and we see this again and again in the book of Revelation. Heaven is a place of incredible beauty. In heaven, everything will captivate us with its form. Imagine being in a place where whatever your picture of beauty is, maybe your picture of beauty is sunrise over the front range in Colorado. And, and you're on the, the western side of the front range, and, and up, up comes the sun over the pines and the snow-capped peaks. And, and maybe you're sitting by a stream and the pines are right there and, and that sun and the fish are kind of coming up. You can see them feeding. And everything just seems perfect and beautiful in its form, right? 
Maybe your picture of heaven is this heavenly feast as it's pictured in, in the Bible. And you, you see the table just laid out beautifully, right? And all your friends and loved ones are gathered there. And beautiful in its form to you just means everybody is having a great time. And they're talking. And the smell of the food is wafting up into your nostrils. And you're like, I'm so hungry. I can't wait to dig in. See, in heaven, we're going to constantly have that feeling that everything is perfectly, you know what they say in the food, the culinary world, right? Everything is perfectly presented. And it's going to be beauty everywhere that we look. When in chapter 21, God describes heaven, it's all laid out in, in, in perfect numbers, how many stadia or arm lengths this city will be and, and, and how tall everything is. And it's pictured as a city where even the foundations are made of precious jewels and the streets are, are laid out not in black tar asphalt, but laid out in gold. And the gates of the city, 12 of them perfectly arranged, three on each of the four walls, are actually large pearls. This is the picture that God gives us of what heaven is going to be like to simply tell us it's going to be an amazing, beautiful place. And we're going to walk in there and we're going to look around and we're going to go, where do I stare first? Because it's all so amazing. But that's not it. There are five of these things that we get from the book of Revelation chapter 22. Here's the second one. As as we read on, uh, he says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. So there's this beautiful city with this, this beautiful river. And there's trees growing. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The tree of life. Full circle, right? When's the last time we heard of this tree of life? All the way back in the very first book of the Bible, right? In Genesis. And God was forced after the people fell into sin to, to chase Adam and Eve out of the garden, set an angel with a, a, a flashing sword swinging back and forth so they could not get back in there and partake of that tree of life after they had sinned and thus be confirmed forever in sin and death and not be able to ever experience heaven. So out of mercy, God sends them packing from the Garden of Eden and sets an angel guard over it. And that's the last we hear of the tree of life until, full circle, here we hear of it again in the very final chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. And here we hear where the tree of life went. People have looked all over the world for it. And God simply tells us it's been transplanted. Out of this world, out of the Eden that existed, it's been taken to heaven. And in heaven, from the sounds of it here, there won't just be one tree of life, but there will be a whole forest of the trees of life planted alongside the banks of this river that flows down from the throne of God in heaven. And we'll be allowed to eat from that tree of life. 
And even the leaves of the tree will be for healing. Now, that's an interesting thought that we might need healing in heaven. I don't know. Maybe it's like a video game where you, uh, you're you on some great adventure and you fall and you go splat and somebody takes those leaves and puts them on you and you, you're back up and ready to go again. I don't know. Here's, here's what it likely means, though. It means that there's not going to be any disease that can't be healed in heaven. There's not going to be any a physical calamity or problem that you could have, that any disability that can't be healed in heaven, you are going to be perfectly constructed in heaven just the way heaven itself is perfectly constructed, and it will be a place of amazing life. Now, how different is that from life in the concentration camp of this world? When Viktor Frankl looked around in the concentration camp at Auschwitz, do you know what the goal of the people was? I don't think he found one person who said, I want to thrive. Basically, the goal of everyone in that concentration camp was, if only I can simply survive. And I want to ask you a question. Be real honest with me. Be real honest with yourself. As you sit here this morning, where are you? Are you thriving? Or are you merely surviving? Are you under so much pressure right now? Under so much hurt and pain? And I'll tell you the one that I think gets at more people than anything else. Do you hold so much anger and bitterness that the most you can manage in life today is survival and thriving is not even an idea in your mind? You see why God gives us this very clear vision of heaven? Because he wants us to know that even if we're stuck in survival mode now, there's going to be a day when you are going to truly live. And as you visualize that day when you will thrive for eternity in heaven, God wants you to download just a little bit of that in your troubles today, in those ups and downs today, and go, if I will thrive then Maybe even in the middle of my troubles right now, I can find a little joy. I can find a little hope. Because I can so clearly see where I'm going for eternity. Maybe even for me today, there's just a little sliver of thrive that's left. And I don't just have to merely survive even now. Because I see God's vision for the future so clearly. Write this down. Heaven is a place of life. In heaven, we will no longer simply survive. We will thrive. Notice what it says in Revelations 22, 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Maybe you're new here today. And you're asking yourself, well, Pastor Jeff is, is, is doing an amazing job of laying out this vision of heaven. Wow, is that going to be a great place. But he hasn't yet told me how I get there. 
And if you have never heard this message before today, I want to just make it very quick, but very plain. When it says in the book of Revelation, those who washed their robes, what it really means is that we are to take all of our sins and have them washed away by the blood of Christ. That when Jesus died on the cross, he wanted to take your sinful, dirty clothing, your life, and run it through his laundromat and wash it in his detergent and cleanse you from every last spot. Iron out every wrinkle in you. Wash you until you are perfect and holy in his sight. And that happens simply when the Holy Spirit enters your heart and he causes you to say, I believe it. I believe that Jesus is my Savior. I believe that Jesus is my Lord. That's how you wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. And it says here in Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their robes because they have the right to eat from the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Simply believe and trust that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. Another verse says, Revelation 21.4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 3 in the very first passage from Revelation 22 reads, No longer will there be any curse. All the results of sin that God tells us about in, in Genesis chapter 1, the results that that now the, the thorns and the thistles are going to grow in, in the fields and Adam is going to have to, by the sweat of his brow, work to get anything and that Eve is going to have pain and childbearing and worse, the, the worst curse of all, that we're all going to die spiritually, physically, potentially eternally if we don't have faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. That curse is going to go away. No longer will there be any curse. And when there is no more curse, there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain. This order of things that causes all of that, that's going away. Heaven is a place of safety. A place where you don't have to worry about being secure. You'll be in the arms of God, in the arms and in the direct presence of Jesus himself. In heaven, hardship, pain, and death will disappear forever. And what that's going to cause is an eternal life of us saying, God, thank you. You are an amazing God. We're going to sing his praises. Hallelujah. That word literally means praise God. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let's rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Going back into our original verses from Revelation 22, it says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Now maybe some of you are thinking, Oh, an eternity of slavery to God? I'm not sure that sounds so great. But that's not what that means. His servants will serve him means that every last thing that you do in heaven, 
will complete the circuit. We've talked about this many times at Crosswalk, how the original design in the Garden of Eden was for God to send all of his blessings down on us. And that when sin came into the world, we became selfish and self-centered, and we, we began to short-circuit things. And the, the glory and the gratitude and the purpose in life, instead of giving thanks back up to God, we began to give thanks to ourselves. We began to glorify ourselves. We began to see ourselves as the purpose of life. And that is the very essence of sin. Man turned in on himself instead of turn back up in gratitude to God. Remember what it says in the New Testament? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. See, that's the way it's going to be in heaven. We'll be living amazing adventures. Don't view heaven as one eternal sermon. You, you have an, you'll have enough of those here if you keep coming to crosswalk. Eternal sermons. Those will be done. In fact, we even read in the Bible that there's no temple in the city because God is right with us. Our whole life will simply be eating, drinking, whatever we do, serving God and bringing glory to him. They will see his face, it says, and his name will be on their foreheads. So heaven is a place of purpose. In heaven, every act will serve and bring glory to God. And here's the final point. Back in our original verses, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp and the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. In heaven, we're going to, to rule and enjoy happiness. And God's name on our foreheads means everything that we do will be wrapped into us thinking about him and being identified with him. And being close to God is going to give us an immense sense of just Happiness. And that's what I want you to write down. Heaven is a place of happiness. Notice the verse, Revelation 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Heaven is a place of happiness. In heaven, God will be near. You know how every service... We say those words, the Lord bless you and keep you. And then in the middle of that, may his face shine on you. You know what that means? It means your father is smiling at you. His face is shining on you. He is pleased with you. Remember back when to when you were a little kid and your dad just, he was happy. Maybe you got a hit in a little league game or you made a, a, a tackle in, in a football game and you looked over and there was your dad looking and there was that big beaming smile on his face. And you thought, awesome. That's what it's going to feel like all the time in heaven. Here's what I want you to do with this. Go back to the beginning. Literally everything, everything 
that you have is going to be one day taken from you. And I know that that sounds like a very distressing thought. But it is true. And unless we have hope and purpose in this life, it's just going to bring us down. And that's why God gives us this amazing vision of heaven, our eternal home, a place where it will be so beautiful we won't know what to do, a place of life and safety, a place of purpose and happiness to sustain us through this concentration camp life that we now live so that we don't just have to survive here, but with that vision firmly planted in our mind, like a come-from-behind victory, like a person who's suffering from a very serious illness, like someone imprisoned in a concentration camp, we can sustain joy and act out of kindness toward others in our life. And why? The answer is simple. All because of Jesus and all because our robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Here's what I want you to do. Key response, I'll constantly refresh God's vision of a perfect life in heaven so that I can patiently endure through the very imperfect life I now have and prevail to the end. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you give us this very clear, tangible vision of what the future is going to be like, what our life in heaven is going to be like. Lord, help us to constantly refresh that vision in our heart and mind so that, so that we have hope and purpose in this life, so that we know that our life has meaning and that it has a positive and victorious end, all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, it's so easy for us to let our own sinfulness and guilt discourage us. It's so easy for us to let the, the trap doors of life, like, like the addictions and the other coping mechanisms that we use to, to, to bring us down. Lord, it's so easy for us to allow the meanness and the, the, the hardness of people in this fallen world discourage us. But Lord, Help us in the midst of all of that to hold firm to this beautiful, pure vision of a heavenly home that you have in place for all of us through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things, Lord, in his name. And Lord.